Well, good evening. Go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5 is where we will be this evening. You can sort of keep your thumb there and then also sort of um, bookmark 1 Peter chapter 4, sort of working with those two verses and some other ones as well. But this will be the kind of our key text, Galatians 5 verse 13. All right, Galatians 5.13, these are the words of God. For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And I will just read 1 Peter 4.10 real quick as well. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we pray that your Spirit would bring us conviction tonight. Um, Would he grant us repentance where repentance is needed? Would he grant us wisdom where wisdom is needed? And we pray for grace to cover all of it. We are thankful for your Son who came to serve us so that we could in turn be good stewards of the manifold grace of God. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen, amen. So it was uh, two weeks ago when we kicked off this series, uh, the series called One Another, and if you recall from that message, I started by explaining the doctrine of the church in terms that are, quite frankly, unconventional. Um, The evangelical church today um, prefers to define the church not in terms of God's covenants, or especially the dominion covenant for that matter, but in terms of inward religious rituals. So instead of her calling to be salt and light in real historical and tangible ways, the church is basically reduced down to an institutional prison whereby men, women, and children are forced to be identified solely in terms of the local cultists. So thus we have the nine marks of the church and the nine marks which incidentally most of them pertain to activities solely within the confines of a four-walled building. Now last time I tried to make sure that we understood how to properly define the word church, the ekklesia, which is a, the Greek word is ekklesia, but it's really in a sense mistranslated as church. Now, we here at Cross and Crown call ourselves church. We say church, but we are strategically trying to redefine it in a way that's coherent. We want to define the word church in a way that's more in line with the scriptures and and the totality of the scriptures. So, So saying church is fine so long as we define it and not just define it, abide by it as well. Um... In today's modern terms, however, the word is, is narrowly defined not only as a building, um, it's also narrowly defined as the people of God sitting in the building. So, so we have people who don't like the building definition, and that's your, you know, your, your average evangelical, oh, we agree, you know, the church is not a building, it's the people. But that's as far as they get. It's the people sitting in the building. So you're not really getting anywhere. You're just stuck in the same old thing. 
So they try to get rid of the stigma, but they're still there. And they say, well, yeah, yeah, it's the people. The church is the people. Absolutely. Amen. But it's the people doing nothing for the world around them. So it's the people, all right, the people that are still defined in terms that are ecclesiologically centered on itself, which means that we need to have a broader definition. Now, remember the word ecclesia. It's related to the Hebrew word kahal. It's tied to this issue of function. Uh, The ecclesia is a functional term. That is, it's work for the kingdom of God. It's the institutional church, and I'm going to define that as the local congregation that's assembled, right, baptized, professing Christians, living for the kingdom, that they are supposed to be a means for the kingdom work. So we've been saved from sin to the dominion mandate. That's what we said two weeks ago. We've been saved from sin to the dominion mandate. So Christ's atonement, yes, his death brought us out of darkness and into the light of his righteousness and his justice. So we've been called out. That's the literal word. Um, when you say ekklesia, ek in Greek means out, like when we, where we would get exegesis, we're pulling out. So the, the ekklesia is the called out people. So we've been called out. In other words, we've been tasked with Christianizing the world through the power of the gospel message. So yes, justice matters. Yes, social justice matters. So as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, we are God's armory. And though our citizenship is, in fact, in heaven, that's clear, the barracks, though, is right here on earth. We're supposed to take the land. We're supposed to be here and present. We are, the church is is our, our people that are God's soldiers in God's army. We're in a battle. We've been conscripted and sent into this war. So we gather, yes, we worship, we pray, we fellowship, we do all those things, and then we send, we, we're sent out. We, we continue to go outward into the culture, confronting evil, exposing evil, um, building empires, if you will, building Christ's empire through honoring him in our business adventures and so on. So that's what we do. We don't gather together. We don't lament our circumstances. And then we leave the church building. We think that our responsibilities are all over. And then we place our hope in escaping the world. That's the prevailing notion in church today. So for us, no, we like Jesus go forth conquering and to conquer. Far too much ecclesiology, that's the study of the church, far too much ecclesiology is obsessed with what we might call the temple model of the church. We talk, we're talking about institutional hierarchies, this sharp chasm between the clergy and the laity. Aren't you guys so blessed to have a pastor who's just so high above you? Not. <laughs> Membership, red tape, all these sort of bureaucratic nonsense that you would think belongs in what we would expect at the federal government level, it comes down to the local church level and all of those types of things. So not many talk about the church the way the Bible talks about the church. Many people are talking about the church the way the church has always talked about the church. And here's kind of what the definition we are working with. The church is supposed to be the people of God committed to the law word of God to such a degree that they are creating, they are fashioning, they are constructing a social order, a culture that reflects God's righteousness. And when, and when all of that happens, the world is influenced and eventually discipled. So I'm going to say that again. The church is supposed to be the people of God committed to the law word of God to such a degree 
that they are creating a culture, they're creating a social order, they're creating a system, if you will, a reflection of those convictions and beliefs that are based on God's righteousness. And when we do all of that, God's commission is take, taken out. It's taken out into the world. The world is influenced, the world is discipled. So all of this, as we talked about two weeks ago, is connected to our koinonia, our fellowship together. The church, by its very nature, is a communion. It's a communion of saints. It's this communion that we experience together. Sometimes it's sharing a meal. Sometimes it's you know, the guys getting together, the girls getting together to do something. Some, sometimes fellowship happens at the front of the gates of hell at a death pit. So fellowship is rooted in the fact that through Christ, we are now restored to fellowship with God. We're restored to fellowship with God. And because of that, we're brought into fellowship with each other. So it's this covenantal bond. Some of you moved a long way to be here, and you didn't really know everybody. But what's the thing that unites us all, besides that post mill? <laughs> The covenantal bond, like we share a common Savior who was crucified for our sins, raised on the third day, and we believe on him, and we've been baptized into his name. So that's, that's the koinonia. The koinonia of the ecclesia is much, much broader and larger than pure institutionalism. So it's rooted in Christ, and it's aimed at the kingdom of God. And the thing is, here, listen, you can't just flip a switch or click a button and then voila, you have koinonia. You know, the thing is, we, we, there's no magical formula that you get to sort of just plug into the computer, the input, and then the output is bam, you know, you have fellowship. It requires submission to Christ. It requires submission to his word. It requires that we actually obey the whole love your neighbor thing. Koinonia, it's not just a formula. It's something that we have to pursue. It's something that it doesn't just, we don't wake up one day and, and oh, I'm, I'm feeling, I had my coffee and koinonia is just so fantastic. It's, it takes effort. And in any sort of community like ours where, where sin infiltrates or these different things, whether it's inside or out from the outside, it doesn't matter, koinonia can be disrupted. So we have to be committed to God's word together. Now, one of the things that we've said from the very outset of this church plant is the fact that what we are doing is much bigger than any one of us. What we're doing is much bigger than any one of us, or any of us collectively. We have an eye towards the future, which means that what we do now, we anticipate, will affect what happens a generation or two down the road. So just look at the current state of evangelicalism today. That didn't just happen two weeks ago. This is generations of nonsense, of rejecting the law of God, of rejecting the mission of God, the kingdom of God, rejecting the victory of Jesus Christ, and this is what we've, this is the fruit. This is not the root of it all. This is the fruit of a root that's been just utter disregard for God's word and the totality of God's word in every sphere of life. So for us, we have an eye toward the future. So every decision, every moment of every day, it really essentially becomes an opportunity to quite literally shape the future. We can shape the future. We are creating this culture here. And the way we do it is spelled out in the Bible. That's why I've decided to call it One Another, the One Another series, right? Genius title. <laughs> 
One of the things that's spelled out and how, is how we're called to serve one another in love. So let's look at our text again. Having said all that, to sort of refresh you, let's look at our text, and I'm going to make some observations. Galatians 5.13, he says this, For you were called to freedom, brethren. You were called, brothers and sisters, to free, Freedom. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. A few things to consider. Paul argues that a return to the shadows of the ceremonial law, the very thing the Judaizers were urging, the very thing he's combating in Galatians here, that return to those shadows would be a denial of the freedom that we have in Christ. So in Christ, we know those ceremonies were abolished. The temple sacrificial system was abolished. The priesthood was, the Levitical priesthood abolished. We are all now priests in Christ, yes. So, so to go back to those ceremonies would be putting someone under the yoke of its slavery. That's chapter 5, verse 1. So our verse says that you were called to freedom. You, today, were called to freedom, kids. There's another key word, freedom. You were called to freedom. The Christian gospel is a call, a beckoning, a summons to freedom. So it's Christ who set us free, and he became a curse for us, we know that from earlier in Galatians, by hanging on a tree. So his, his curse-smashing death was the removal of the death penalty that was due all of us, and thus we are in Christ. We are truly free. We are liberated we are liberated now to do what? To obey God's law. That's what we're free to do. We're free to obey him. We were imprisoned and cursed under the weight of the law, but since Christ stepped in, we are now free. We are free. So we're called to this freedom. It's something we're called to. But Paul is quick to ensure that we don't misunderstand the freedom. Now in our culture, yes, freedom is defined as throwing off anything that might inhibit my pursuit of my lusts. That's what freedom is. Freedom, my body, my choice, right? The pride movement. All these things are this removal of anything that might get in the way of me pursuing what my heart wants. Because after all, you're supposed to just follow your heart. So we have to be careful when we talk about freedom. What does it mean? Paul says not to use our freedom in Christ as an opportunity for the flesh. So that essentially rules out all the nonsense <laughs> right there off the bat. As Israel was freed from slavery in Egypt in order to serve Yahweh, now, now Christ's people, we are freed in him. We are freed from slavery to sin, and now we are called to the task to serve the kingdom of God. That's the logic. So we're not free to go about our own way. We are not free to do as we please. We are free to do that which pleases Christ. So, so we can't use our freedom. to. We can't wield our freedom to a selfish end. That's abusing our freedom in Christ. So instead of serving our selfish desires, instead of, of serving our, our lusts, our transgressive manipulations, we are told then, instead of that, we are told to serve one another through love. Through love. It's an interesting phrase. At the end of that argument is this service of one another that Paul brings up. We're to serve each other. Now the word serve is actually, 
it's related to the Greek word doulos, which is where we get slave. So it's actually a connection. Um, Paul says that, in effect, we are to be slaves of each other. That's an interesting dynamic. We're supposed to be slaves of each other. We're supposed to be working hard for each other. We are supposed to work and serve each other in a way like the person who's doing restitution. We're, we're committed to each other. We're um, working hard for one another. But he says all of that, though, has to be done through the means of love. The end for us as a Christian community is to serve each other, but the way we do that is through love. Now, again, we have to be careful. Our culture wants the word love to be entirely spent on selfish desires. Love. To love is to tolerate someone, right? To agree with someone, no matter the cost, and all this other nonsense that goes on. Love has been ripped from the Christian dictionary and given a new set of lawless standards and definitions. But we know what love is, right? We know what love is. The Bible tells us what love is. Romans 13.10, Paul says very clearly what love is. Love is the fulfilling of the law. That's what love is. Love in and of itself is less about emotion and pious gush. It's less about how you feel and it's more about what you actually do. So loving someone, to truly love someone, whether it's your spouse or your best friend, your parents, to love someone is treating them in terms of God's law. That's how you love someone. That's what it is in Scripture. That's simply what it is. It's this disposition of your mind, your will, your emotions to treat others in terms of God's law because only God's law is the only true and good and right and ethical standard. Does that make sense? To, to love someone is to treat them lawfully. To treat that person lawfully in your minds. That's why when Jesus says, uh, if you have... Um, hate towards your brother. It's, it's murderous. Because you're not treating them lawfully. If you're lusting after someone, you're not treating them lawfully. You're treating them unlawfully. You're, that's the problem. So we are called to freedom by Christ through His atoning and regenerating work. So we are no longer dead in our sins. We are no longer servants and slaves of sin. But instead, we're now alive. And now we serve righteousness and justice. That's, the, that's our master. Jesus is our master. His throne, the foundation of His throne, Psalm 89 says, is righteousness and justice. So we have been liberated. Don't miss this. We've been liberated underneath God. So true freedom is not the abandonment of God's authority. Rather, it's found in our embrace of God's authority. True freedom is not recklessness and do whatever it is that you want. <laughs> true freedom is not found in this abandonment of God's authority. Oh, I'm free, so now I don't have to you know, do this. I can do what I want. Rather, no. Instead, it's found in our embrace of God's authority. If you truly... If you want to truly be free in your life, you must come to Christ. Christ will forgive you. He will grant you His Holy Spirit. And then and only then are you free to obey the way He has called us to obey Him. So we must put the law of God into action in all areas of life. That's what it means. We're supposed to love our neighbor as our self. That's Leviticus 19.18. And, and all of those things are done when we use our freedom in Christ to treat each other lawfully. To treat each other lawfully. 
Now, real quick, if you want to turn there, you can go to 1 Peter. Right after Hebrews and right next to the book of James. 1 Peter chapter 4. First Peter 4.10. Oops, I got to get to chapter 4. I didn't make it there. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. First Peter 4.10 says that each of us has a gift or gifts and that we are supposed to be using them in order to serve each other. So, so in Christ, we have been given the task of managing God's grace in our lives. That's what we do. God gave us grace. We have to manage it. We have to utilize it. We have to understand it and employ it. And, all, and we do that by using the gifts he's given us. So if it's teaching, teach. If it's wisdom and counsel, if God has given you insight in those types of things, then do that. Do that with people. If it's knowledge, dispense it. If, you have, if God has granted you knowledge of his word, then write. Do it. Do the gift that God has given you. If Maybe some of you have the gift of encouragement. I'm pretty sure none of us are going to say, my encouragement tank is full today. No, thank you. <laughs> Do it. If God has given you these gifts listed in his word, places Romans list some, right? Then use them. That's the point of the body of Christ, to use them. And they're meant to build up the body. That's the point of Ephesians 4. The saints grow together. We are on this path of maturity, right? Sanctification is the process of, of God getting rid of all this inconsistency and getting us wisdom and maturity. That's, the whole, that's, what, we, that's what we're supposed to be doing. So our lawful treatment of each other, when, when it's dispensed with God's gifts, it builds this community. It builds the community of Christ in such a way that it grows us. It matures us. People see it. People respond to it. And then the world is infiltrated. And what's interesting is all of this is sort of paradoxical, really. We are slaves of sin, but Christ, he came to serve us, and now we're slaves of him and one another. That's the transaction of the gospel. So instead of this fleshly compulsion, we are now free and able to volunteer ourselves to one another using a compulsion that's fueled by love, that's fueled by the Spirit, that's fueled by God's law. Now all of this, as I mentioned briefly a minute ago, is it's fueled by regeneration, the doctrine of regeneration. That's the key here. That's the thing that the Spirit does in us in order to transform our desires the spirit, the born-again-ness of God's people. You see, regeneration changes your appetite for the things of the world. Regeneration changes your appetite. It changes the palate of what you desire and what you long for. It changes all of your motivations, too. You want to be in fellowship with other believers. You want to. When your nature is changed by God the Holy Spirit, everything is changed. Everything. For example... In a way, I'll, this is just a subtle way that it changes. Instead of, instead of looking at our, at our envy and our covetousness, sometimes Christians are tempted to look with envy and look with covetousness. You see the difference? The regenerate Christian knows that's not how it's supposed to be. The regenerate member of Christ in Christ's body doesn't look with lust. 
He looks at his lust. He stares at it and says, this is not lawful. This is an ungodly desire. Now that he's free in Christ, his disposition is one towards a war against the flesh, a war against sin, and thus a cultivation of serving one another in love. You can't serve someone in love when you lust after them. You can't do it. You, you can't serve someone in love if you covet their house or if you're coveting their car or their lifestyle or what have you. You can't serve one another in love when you're envious of that person, when you're constantly critiquing that person, when all you can do is point out the flaws of that person. That's not, that's not a person who understands freedom. You see, when it, comes to, when it comes to doing the Christian life together, there are certain sins that are more prone to rear its ugly head in this type of environment. Sins that manifest themselves because of the nature of the Christian community. Sins like selfishness. Anybody selfish this week? No? No? Anybody envious this week? What about sins like jealousy? Jealousy or lying or the list could go on. Now, we, we need to know that we have to cut those things out like a tumor. We can't just placate them. We can't get excited about them. We have to look at them. We can't look with them. We have to make war against those types of things. We can't be side glancers, right? We, you know, we spend time looking at other people. We criticize people more than we do at looking at ourselves in terms of God's law. When we do that, we have a huge problem. This sort of horizontal onlyism, if we can call it that. It destroys Christian community. It destroys it. It's a terrible way to try to figure out God's grace and God's mercy and God's justice when we're side glancing, when we're looking at other people. This side glancing distracts us from what, who, what it is we're supposed to be looking at or who it is we're supposed to be looking to, the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ. So if cross and crown is going to serve each other in love the way the Bible says that we should, then this means that we must not be looking at each other first. We must not look at each other first. We can't look at the person or the couple across the room and begin throwing our sins their way, even if it's, even if it's in the heart and it hasn't left your mouth. Still a sin. Right, kids? Just because you didn't hit your siblings or you didn't take their toy, you thought about it. It was in your heart. And that too needs to be repented of. So if we're going to obey Christ, if we're going to obey this call to serve one another in love, we have to be preoccupied with Christ. That's it. We cannot be preoccupied with each other in an unhealthful way, in an unlawful way. That's, that's it. It comes down to that. Psalm 2.11 says, We must worship or serve the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Matthew 6.24, Jesus said very clearly, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve your neighbor and your envy. You can't serve your neighbor and your jealousy. You can't do it. 
You cannot serve your Christian brother or sister while serving your lusts. You can't do it. You cannot serve two masters. But what we must do instead is understand that true power in this life, true power is godly service. That's it. Brother Chris read the passage. It's so clear. That was not a difficult passage, was it? It was very straightforward. Godly power, godly authority. Listen, true power is godly Christian service of each other. That's it. True power is godly Christian service of one another. That's where the power is. Do you know why we're not changing America? We're not serving each other. We think that serving each other is having a killer greeter team at a MIC church. This is run-of-the-mill stuff. I've been, listen, I've been at those churches. I've served at those churches. I've worked with people on staff that think that way. And you know what the staff meetings are? How'd Sunday go? Well, the greeter team was a little rough. One guy called out sick, so we were down. The one door wasn't manned. So I know there was somebody that came in that door that did not get a handshake. So we got to do better next week. It's like you're at a pep talk from like the post-game report in the locker room. That's, that's the scorecard. And that's why we have abortion on demand. That's why we have injustice flooding our streets. That's why. Because we don't know how to serve each other in a way that's actually true, genuine love towards one another. Lawful treatment of one another. True power is godly Christian service in one another, towards one another, of one another. Now, oftentimes, we don't serve, right? We don't serve because we, sp- we don't spend the necessary time to look at our neighbor in a lawful way that seeks to bless him or her. Is that true? Could, can any of us say, man, last week was amazing. I served my guts out. <laughs> Some of you are tired, maybe because the kiddos, you know, you, kids, you get served pretty hardcore, so thank your mom and dad. All right? But instead of, of, instead of looking at her or him as an opportunity to bring a lawful blessing into their life, we're looking with covetousness or lust or envy, jealousy. You can't do it. Cannot serve two masters. Sometimes we don't serve because we find ourselves too busy to serve others. We're too busy. We're too busy to serve other people. We're, we're, we're too busy with this and that and the other thing. This is unacceptable. It's unacceptable. If we aren't serving one another in love, we are sinning. This is not a suggestion from Paul or Peter. Hey, if you get around to it, if you could, serve each other. I mean, don't go out of your way. This is a command, a holy command. It is a lawful command. True freedom is a lawful thing. So some, maybe we're too busy. And if that's the case, we have to repent. Listen, we, are, we're, <laughs> we serve each other best when our lives are marked by an earnest and sincere captivation by the gospel of the kingdom. That's when we serve each other best. When we are inundated with the gospel of the kingdom. When we are consumed by it. So be captivated, we must. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we realize that at times we try to serve two masters instead of believing your word which tells us that the greatest among us will be servants. Instead of believing that, we try to circumvent this and exalt ourselves instead. We repent. 
Lord Jesus, for not taking seriously the model you set before us, the washing of feet, the praying for one another, the healing, the proclamation of the kingdom of God. Grant us forgiveness, we beg of you, so that we may be empowered to lead as servants and love as slaves of each other. We ask that you would use us for the advancement of your kingdom as we serve one another in love. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.